Yeah, welcome to our as yet unnamed podcast about uh, the Jewish world, Torah, and things that we're thinking about. My name is Ruben Spolter, and I am officially the director of a program called OTS Amiel Vakihila, uh, which is a part of Machon uh, Amiel of Ortora Stone. That's what I do during my during the day. I also work part time for Irgun Rabbeinu Sohar. I'm here with Rabbi Johnny Solomon and with Mrs. Molly Brasky. Johnny, can you say a little bit about yourself, please? Okay, so my name is Johnny Solomon. As you may be able to tell from my accent, I'm originally from London, where I taught Judaic studies, and I developed curricula. In 2012, I made Aliyah, and I live in Evan Shmuel with my wife Donna and our five daughters. I teach in two seminaries. I write uh, Jewish educational materials. I like sharing ideas on social media. I like promoting Torah study for women. Uh, my passions are varied, but uh, I love studying and teaching contemporary halacha, and I'm fascinated by the intersection between education and technology. Okay, Molly Brasky. Molly, a little bit about yourself, please. Hi, I am Molly Brasky. I am a Jewish educator. I've been teaching for the past 20 years in various seminaries, but my, my central and main home is MMY. I'm also in-house mental health professional there. I have a master's in social work. I also have a clinical private practice in Alonshvut, which is my home, where I live with my husband, David, and I'd like to say where I live with my four children, but my older children are at the age where they're not home as often. <laughs> yeah, but I, I'll still say I live here with my four children. Okay, so uh, if you're going to say where you live, I live in Yad Binyamin. We made Aliyah 10 years ago. So uh, be, what, why are we having this podcast? Why are we having this discussion? So the, the answer is because A, I like podcasts and they're always interesting to listen to. And there are all kinds of interesting things that always go on in the Jewish world that I thought, uh, you know, meet, should be talked about, should be discussed. And so Johnny and I were Facebooking, and I said, we should do a podcast. And he came over that night, and we sort of mapped something out. And then we called Molly, and she said, that's really funny. I ought to do a podcast, too. So thank God we're all, uh, I think we're all on the same page. So the format is as follows. We're going to have, we're going to discuss three topics. Each one of us is going to introduce a topic and sort of, uh, uh, introduce a topic and and uh, and maybe share their thoughts on it, and then the other two are going to comment, and maybe we'll see where that goes. Uh, we're going to have each topic be about ten minutes, and then we'll stop. Okay, uh, so I'm going to introduce the first topic. The topic that I wanted to discuss, it really, what really got me thinking, was an article that many people have seen in the New York Times, which was a book review written by Gail Beckerman about American Jews. It's called American Jews Face a Choice to Create Meaning or Fade Away. So it's a really, um, it's an important article to read. It's a sort of a survey of a bunch of, a bunch of different books that are written about this, the vanishing American Jewish community. And what really caught my attention, at least in, in this area, was a review of, an, of the book called, of a book by Herb Minukin. Minukin? Professor Minukin from Harvard. Okay, and, and he wrote, he, he wrote basically in his, in his book, he said, you know, we don't have to, with the shrinking Jewish demographics, with, the, with the, 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 the ongoing loss of Jews in the United States, we have to stop deciding who gets to be Jewish and who doesn't get to be Jewish anymore. Okay, so Manukin wrote, I'm just looking for this, uh, he wrote the following. It no longer makes sense, Manukin thinks, to use matrilineal descent or any descendant to determine who's a Jew. If you feel yourself to be a Jew, you get to be one. The cho chosen people must become the choosing people. Now, I'm not going to comment about that. I'm a halachic person, and I believe in chazal and matrilineal descent, so let's look at that and decide. 
What he said is the following is, is really interesting. He said, all will have options, don't be turned away. Within the tent, if someone wants to set up their own purity test for inclusion in the subgroup, Manukin is fine with that. But the entrance should be wide. So that's really got my, my, my attention and my interest. Who gets to decide who's in a subgroup and who's not in a subgroup? And so what really got me thinking about this was two things. First of all, I, I, I share sometimes, I share a carpool with a person who works in a, I don't, I don't want to give anything about it away, it was like a private conversation. She works in a college, an Israeli, an Israeli religious college, a Zionist college. Okay, and she said that they have a, a program, one of the programs is a group of Haredi women who have learned Gemara every week. There's like Haredi women who learn Gemara Be'il. And while I must say, I'm sure Johnny and I, Johnny would agree that this is an amazing thing, but I said, okay, they're not, she's not Haredi. You don't get to be Haredi and also learn Gemara because Haredi women don't learn Gemara. They have children, they raise their families. You don't get to be Haredi. That was one example. The other example that I saw almost the same week, I was thinking about this, was a woman named Bracha Deutsch. I don't know if you've heard of Bracha Deutsch. Bracha Deutsch won the half marathon in Tiberia. And they call her the first female Haredi marathon in the country. So if you look for Bracha Deutsch, you'll find an article on Ynet about her. And, uh, and you know, they ask her, Susie, she's a tremendous kid. It's like, so, it's so nice to see her standing up on the podium with like holding her baby. It's like, oh, I don't know how you do it, but okay. Okay, and she says, I'm the first Haredi champion. Most Haredi people are busy learning with the Torah and have no time to even think about sports. So I agree with her that it's very nice that she runs. The question though is, can you say, I want to be Haredi, but I want to be, I want to be Haredi on my own terms. I want to be in my own group. So Manukin, I think, would say, no, you can't. Meaning in the Haredi set of group, and they say, you want to be Haredi, here are the rules. And if you don't want to be, you want to do your own thing, that's all fine and good, but don't consider yourselves part of my Haredi community. I'm different. And I happen to, happen to, I happen to agree about that. I, I actually personally agree with that. I think you want to be Haredi, then be Haredi, and it's wonderful, and if that's for you, and that's the choice that you make, that's a great thing. On the other hand, if you, if you don't want to adhere to the, to the rules of the group, then make up your own group. You can be in any group you want. But why do you feel the need to still be Haredi, but say, I want to be Haredi and also run a marathon, or I want to be Haredi and learn Gemara, or I want to be Haredi and get a secular, whatever the, whatever the rule is, or I want to be beyond Orthodox and not support the state of Israel. You don't get to choose. You want to be in a certain group. That's my, that's my thing. That's my, that's my personal opinion. People at my Shabbat table disagreed with me. I'd love to hear what you guys think. Molly. Okay, so uh, my first thought is that I think I have the exact opposite perspective of Manuka, not that I can speak for him because I didn't, not only have I not read his book, I didn't even read the review, so I'm going only on what you said. But the way I would formulate this is my first intuition is that we, you do absolutely have to have boundaries, which is why, it's not just the halakhic issue. I don't think that Judaism should be Today I feel Jewish, so now I'm going to be part of the Jewish community. I, I, I have an instinctive kind of negative reaction to this. I get to self-identify as whatever I feel like, um, mm -hmm. and therefore creates my identity. So that I disagree with. I believe there have to be boundaries on identity that are commonly agreed upon. Um, you know, maybe it's too much to ask for the entire population, but I'd say a reasonable amount of people, because... Otherwise, you start losing all sense of, of coherence um, and things really start to fall apart. And so, so I would agree with you about that. And even let's say about this issue of like, 
what's Haredi? What's Datilomi? What's um, Chiloni? I think that, th that you're right, that there have to be kind of general um, rules, or uh, maybe rules is too strict a word, but what's, uh, what's modern orthodox? Mm -hmm. um, that, that, that define those communities, otherwise it becomes meaningless. At the same time, uh, and this I think is informed from my experience at MMY, because MMY is a place that by on purpose has a very broad range of hashkafic uh, positions represented by the faculty, including a lot of, not a lot, but a, let's say a few central figures who are American yeshivish, let's say, move to Beit Shemesh and find themselves in this middle ground. And so they are very um, insistent, don't put me in a box. I get to decide who I am. And spending so much time having conversations with them and not just personal conversations, but public conversations. Every year we have a panel discussion for the girls and this is one of the issues that comes up. I have, after hearing them speak, I'm always on the side of like, pick a lane. Like I am definitely <laughs> going to the army. Your kid's not going to the army. If your kids aren't going to the army, you don't have the right to like, right is again, a strong word, but you don't have the luxury of telling me, you know, pick a, pick a hashkafa. But after years, people, I, I think I've ingrained a tremendous respect for their right to define themselves and who they are. And for my certain degree of like humility and appreciation for their right to be, um, I'd say flexible about their own, like they really get to think through the issues inside. Just like when you said, women in the Haredi world don't, don't learn Gemara. I'm like, that is cat nonsense. I know many women in the Haredi world do learn Gemara. So perhaps some of this is stereotypes from us. And perhaps there are always people on the edges of movements that are not fully in the movement uh, or however you want to define it. Don't, don't fit either the stereotype or what you want to call the unwritten rules of, of what it is. And I think that that's, besides the fact that I think that that they can still legitimately be whatever they consider themselves, I think that it's actually a very healthy phenomenon because, you know, cross-movement, you know, kind of in, in, informing from one movement to the other is actually very healthy. Um, meaning, with, the more people within one movement, if something becomes more accepted and more popular, I think that might actually be beneficial. It might be beneficial to the community itself, might be beneficial to communication across communal lines. So I guess the way I would formulate it when I was thinking about how I would formulate my response to you, Ruby, was I think people get the right to define themselves and then we have the right in the same sense, and maybe the, again, maybe the word right is too strong, but like whatever, permission to decide whether we think that what we think about their definition and perhaps we should even engage them in conversation about that and even push a little bit. Um, but I, I think that should be the approach. Like, you know, you want to call yourself a Haredi woman who runs? Call yourself a Haredi woman who runs. I'm not sure whether that's fully Haredi that I could engage you in conversation about, wait a second, you know, like, why do you consider yourself a Haredi? What's Haredi? And we can actually have an intelligent conversation perhaps, you know, about helping figure out what are those parameters which I do believe should exist would define what Haredi is or is not. Those are I was going to say, firstly, these things differ from place to place. So Haredi in North America is different to Haredi in England and is different to Haredi in Israel. We all know this. That's point number one. Point, 
it's interesting actually that's clear that she says that she she's from America. Meaning right. had she not come, like she is an interesting phenomenon because had she not come from America, had she been born in Israel, what the odds are that she never would have run in the first place. But I'm sorry, go on. Right. I mean, for example, in England, I can get away wearing a black hat and people don't necessarily think that somehow I've given up on my core values. But if I do that here, people presume a whole different type of ideology. But I want to also say there's a vast difference between ideological affinity and ideological membership. I can say I, have, I affiliate to a Haredi population. Why? Because Torah is important to my life. Why? Because mitzvahs are important to my life. That doesn't necessarily mean that that group grants me automatic membership. It's the same thing. A person can say I affiliate to modern orthodoxy. Well, unless they daven three times a day, I don't necessarily know whether they necessarily meet the membership criteria of modern orthodoxy when orthodox requires Shemirat mitzvot. So there are these kind of dual identities. One is membership, where the group says, yes, you're part of it. And the other one is affiliation. But moreover, things shift. So if somebody went to college, does that mean they're no longer Haredi? Somebody has a smartphone, does it mean they're no longer Haredi? Certainly, in terms of the uh, ideology pushed out by that group, and you could take another group and the ideology pushed out by them, one could say that that uh, all of a sudden renders them not part of that grouping. Nevertheless, they can say, I live in a particular type of way. I affiliate with a particular group. Most of their values are embedded in some which way to my life. Consequently, I'd like to claim some part of the family, some, some distant, if not uh, close, connection to this grouping because I call them my ideological home. Don't you think, though, and I will, I guess, well, I'll just ask, I think the difference is what a person, I agree with Molly, a person can define themselves. Of course, you have the right for self-definition. But I also think that the group as a whole, or the hive, as it were, has a right to, to, to say, you can say what you want, but that doesn't mean we're going to accept you. I Meaning, I'm not going to speak for the Haredi. It's not my place. It's not my community. But I think if somebody said they're religious Zionists, but they reject the state of Israel, I could say, you can think what you want. But that's not the ideology to which I, I you know, me and all of the other religious Zionists, you know, comport. And for, to say from here till tomorrow, you're gonna, if you wanna, if you, you're not, that doesn't mean that your self-identification has meanings. So I was, it was interesting, I was looking, I posted on Facebook, I said, I wonder if any Haredi institutions had, had promoted, had publicized this Haredi runner. I couldn't find it, which is, you know, you know somebody on the Facebook posted it, an article on H.com. And I was like, that doesn't count. You know, that's, that's Kiro. And that's a totally different world. That's wonderful. But I think by definition that they're saying, you want, you want to go running, do us a favor. Go to Tavarian, go running. And, but don't bring it home. Because that may be for you. What's that? No, I didn't mean to inter interrupt. Okay. No, sure. You know, they, but, I, don't bring it home. Meaning it might be good for you, but, you know, when you come home, be Haredi at home. That's the sense that I, that I get. And I happen to think that that's a good thing, that, uh, you know, of course, of course, you're not going to, I don't want to tell people how to live their lives, that's not my place. But I think that, I, I just believe that lines are important, and I want to identify with a group that has an identity. You know, you could even extrapolate it to, to, um, to what's going on in politics in Israel today. If you look at, like, the whole split of the Baida Yumi, then it couldn't take it anymore. How much more, like, what, what do these rabbis want from me? But it's a religious Zionist party. It's not, you know, it, it's not just a, 
political, you know, wave for you. It's not just a right wing party. And that's a really interesting question. Is there, there's, I think there's a give and take. There's a, there's a push and a pull, we'll put it that way. Yeah, I would just add that I think you're making a very nice distinction, which is uh, as opposed to the, the original kind of perspective, which is like, I, you don't have a right to identify as a different party that I think you are, right? I'm not Haredi, but who are you to be Haredi? I think what you're saying now, I can uh, get much more on board with is that the community gets to decide and the dialogue happens within the community. And that's, that's healthier because I think that way you get both of the, ben the benefits, which is the community gets to decide its boundaries and its parameters, but the community therefore also is given opportunities for growth and change that happen from within the community, which is always a healthier way for change to happen. So I think that that's, I, I like that formulation better, which is the, like if the person is rejected by their own community, that's a sign that, that they are no longer part of the community. But if the community has dialogue around yes, no, perhaps, right, that's more of an indication that this is an issue that, that the community is, is growing with and, and, and changing, perhaps grappling with. Okay. Okay, so now we'll uh, turn to our second topic. I'm not watching the clock at all. I think we went over. Mm -hmm. um, but first, a word from our first sponsor, uh, Molly. I'm kidding. We don't have a sponsor. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> if you want to sponsor us, you can find me on, uh, on Facebook and I'd be happy to take your money. Johnny, a second topic, please go ahead. Okay, so um, as you both may know, I love learning contemporary Truvot, and among my recent purchases was a copy of Ubet Hillel Omrim, which is a collection of 15 Piskei Halakha produced by members of the Bet Hillel organization. Now, I'm currently midway through writing my review of this book. But one thing I've already addressed in my review, which Avram Stav specifically addressed in his review, which appeared in last week's Makorishon, relates to the concept of collective and collaborative response writing. As he was explained in his review, today there are a few poskim whose rulings carry individual weight. As such, the next best thing is for halachic rulings to be generated by groups who, together, can debate the issues of the day and reach a halachic consensus. Now, my purpose here isn't to discuss the individual rulings of Abet Hillel Omrim, but rather to discuss this claim that we are living in an age where halachic decision-making is best achieved through groupthink than necessarily through the halachic conclusions of an individual posek. Now, of course, this trend is also reflective of a general move away from rabbinic authority in our postmodern age, which is something that numerous people, especially Yuval Sherlow, has discussed. Nevertheless, as we know, when groups have to reach a consensus, often these reflect positions which are not too strict or necessarily too lenient. So I'm interested in hearing your opinions to whether the model of Sikha through groups, through collective dialogue, is something that should be more actively pursued, or whether when halachic decisions are rendered by groups, something will naturally be lost through that collective endeavor. Okay, so I was thinking about this. I have, I have a, a couple of comments. First comment I, I was thinking about is that in Imasech Sanhedrin it says that when the Sanhedrin has to give a psak, so what, the way that it works is that the the the, chazah, the rabbanim were, were situated around a circle, and they were put in in, in order of, of authority, order of seniority. But the, the Mishnah, I'm pretty sure the Mishnah says that the person on the outside gave mm -hmm. his psak, and then the person you know next to him and next to him moving their way up the chain. 
because they didn't want to be influenced by the Psaq, you know, if the Gadol Hador gave his Psaq, they didn't want to be influenced. So there obviously is a place for, on the one hand, the, the individual, but on the other hand, they didn't want to be the, the, the people giving their Psaq, their ruling, to be influenced by somebody greater than them or somebody better than them or somebody they, they, they thought was more significant from them. I have to say that I find the idea of communal Psaq troubling. Because what it ends up bringing is a bunch of people who are like-minded, meaning Beit Hillel, I mean, we, we didn't introduce Beit Hillel, so if you're not aware of Beit Hillel, Beit Hillel is, I would say, the most liberal Orthodox group in Israel today. One of the, you know, they're, they're, they're no, very, that's not fair. What? Namanita Rav Avodah is more liberal. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> that's not a rabbinic group. Namanita Rav Avodah is not a rabbinic group. Okay, fair. Sorry. Okay. So it's the most liberal rabbinic group in Israel today. I mean, Orthodox rabbinic group. Firmly within the Orthodox camp, without a doubt, but the most liberal rabbinic group. And, uh, and which means that they 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 grouped together around an agenda. Like they're like-minded. They have, they have like-minded ideas and they have like-minded things to think about. And that means that if they, whenever they're going to issue psaq, it's not psaq, it's, it's psaq as agenda, or agenda as psaq, or the intersection of, of the two. You know, they want to tackle issues like, you know, women, we have, you know, rule, you know, give on lots of rulings, or, you know, things of that nature. And, you know, I'm, I'm not, I, I, you know, you almost know the answers are going to be a foregone conclusion. Whereas, well, don't we have the same thing with RCA? Don't we have this with the same thing with the well, RCA does so not issue, as well? RCA never issued SAC. RCA issues position policy. papers. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But that's not SAC. That is not Psaq That's This book was about Psaq Now, Johnny, I didn't go to their event. I loved, if you don't mind sharing, would you mind sharing what you wrote about Rav Medan said? At the the Rav Medan episode at the at the uh, book launch of Ubedilel Amin, if you don't mind. I don't mind, although it's the same. The topic is more broadly about the process necessarily than this particular project or book. Nevertheless, at the book launch, uh, they were obviously very proud to say we've just produced this book. Uh, and Rav Yaakov Medan was one of the guest speakers, and he went along and he said. Uh, this is called the Bet Hillel Omrim, but Bet Hillel, though they generally took the more lenient view, I believe their opinion was accepted because at times they were more stringent. And I feel in this book, you've always turned to the lenient position. And actually your job is to defend Torah, not always go for the lowest halachic common denominator. So uh-huh. he was fairly firm. And there was a debate afterwards, uh, some people challenging his remarks, some people concurring with them. So, I, I, so that's what I think a Gadol does. That's why you, you go around a Gadol. Because when you went to Rav Aaron Lichtenstein or Rav Moshe Feinstein, Rav Moshe was known as a great maker. But when you went to him, then you went to him because you didn't know what he was going to say to you. You went to him and you said, I submit to your perspective, to your halachic view. You have a worldview based on your knowledge and your life experience, whoever your prosaic is going to be. And you're going to use that in order to inform your halachic decision. You're not going to use groupthink in order to come to a foregone conclusion. And so... Yes, there's a lot. I think the loss of individual psaq in this postmodern age is more about us than it is about finding the gadol. The gadolim are out there. The great people are out there. We need people to turn to them. We need people to want them. That's my personal position. Just just before you get to Mari, Avram Stav disagrees. Basically, what he said in his review, I don't know if you saw it, was since the death of Rabbi Yosef, there really isn't these kind of heavyweights. 
And so this is the next best thing. You're claiming there are such people. We're just overlooking them. Is that right? You don't know great Gedolin who can issue Psaac on a wide um, myriad of issues? I do. I think that we just don't want to ask them. Okay. Mali, what do you think? Okay. So um, I, I think, I, think I, I tend, like Ruby, to take a more um, conservative small c perspective on this issue, but I think not exactly from the same place. I will give a little bit more credit to Beit Hillel than is coming through, let's say, through what Ruby is saying. I think that they took it very seriously. I think they, they had serious halakhic conversation. Um, I, Rav Maidan's uh, statement is in its place and notwithstanding, and I think is correct, and I think is correct specifically in this context, but I, I, I think that there, there, there are serious minds there. And I will also say that one of the other advantages I think that Rav Stav mentioned that I agree with very much is that one of the advantages of the Beit Hillel Forum is that it gives room for women to add their voices to the lack of conversation in orthodoxy in ways that aren't, aren't afforded to them. And he doesn't explicitly say that, but he says, like, you can hear Racheli Sprecher talking about, yes, Racheli yeah. talking about her experience saying Kaddish, and you can hear Oha to her life talking about, I forgot, what, something with the army, if I recall. And I would, I would say, I would add this idea of women speaking, you know, having their voices heard. Um, at the same time, I do, I, I do have a intrinsic concern. And again, so again, to be fair to Beit Hillel, I think that they were serious about their halachic considerations when they did this. I, so that was one of the things I was going to say, which is, I... My, I, when the two things that you said that do concern me are I'm not into groupthink as a form of um, coming to, I'm wary of it. I shouldn't say I'm not into it. I'm wary of it because I think groupthink has a lot of intrinsic pitfalls. Um, it devolves very quickly into consensus, the rallying around, um, and that concerns me very much, especially mm -hmm. within the System. And I am also very concerned about the movement in today's world away from rabbinic authority. I don't love, I, I think democracy is a great thing. I'm not sure that the democratization of the halakhic process is necessarily a great thing. I don't think that's how halakha is supposed to work. And I think in the world, um, the flattening of the concept of expertise is not something that I am particularly fond of, which again, doesn't mean that I don't see the positives of um, allowing more voices to, to the table, I just think that um, we shouldn't lose our understanding that there is such a thing as expertise on issues and that that should have weight. Um, I, 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 guess, I guess that's all I have to say about that. Um, I think also that the broad shoulders issue is an issue also within, within the Beit Hillel issue itself. Like, they, I think they would be happy if, like, I think Rav Stav is pointing to a problem, which is, I think they would have been delighted to have somebody with broad shoulders to be the person to, to put their sakalacha on, and the fact that they have to kind of, uh, you know, instead rely on their group consensus is not necessarily something that they, that they think is wonderful. I think it's just, you know, the reality of the, the nature of what, what it is that they were doing. 
Um, no, what, so, what does it say that they can't find someone whose shoulders they want to lean on? Say that That's, again? What does it say that they don't feel they have someone whose shoulders they can lean on to justify that. Their, 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 their perspective? That's the question. And I mean, is, it that, yeah. is it that there is no one? Meaning, you think about what Rabbi say when he was alive, would have said, oh, I'll be the head of Big Hillel. Meaning, right, okay, so but those, that's pretty, now you're already moving into a more specific conversation about Beit Hillel itself and an internal dynamics there. Um, oh, that's what I thought you were saying. A lot of Orthodox or Dutch thinkers who would agree with, with Rav Stav's, with Rav Stav's assessment that there aren't Gedolim out there. That's the question. Do you agree that there aren't Gedolim out there? No, that I don't agree with. No, that I don't agree with. That I don't agree with. That's kind of what I'm saying. I'm saying that I definitely don't agree with that. I think that 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 it would be better for Beit Hillel if they had more people in their tent who had larger shoulders and then and those people could be the gadol who their their piske halacha could lean on. I think that there are reasons why that's not happening, but I don't think it's because um, there aren't people out there. Well, so I, know, I know we're taking away from time, but I just want to challenge the term of the Easter word, the gadol, because we know the term, the gadol itself, is generally uh, uh, venerated more in Haredi circles. And uh, I wouldn't say there haven't been great Torah scholars within religious Zionist modern Orthodox worlds, but that very concept of the Gadol doesn't exist or isn't promoted in quite the same way. So aren't we kind of mixing two very different concepts? We're seeking well, the Gadol, and yet at the same time, these movements or these groups are generated more so by these kind of collective endeavors by, by these fusions of ideas. I, I, don't know, I, I think you're, you're confusing two different things. We believe in Gedolim, but I think my Gadol doesn't tell me what to do. I ask him what I should do. Those are very different things. So, so I don't believe in a Gadol who is the head of my political movement and who has, you know, who has total control. I believe there's a Gadol who has great shoulders who I turn to for guidance and leadership. That's how I see a Gadol. I don't think that because I'm modern, I, I, don't, I don't believe in Gedolim. I do believe in Gedolim, but I just see they have a different function. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I was going to say, woe unto us as a community if we decide that we don't uh, have a sense of, if you prefer the term people with broader shoulders than to the term Gadol, because you think Gadol has been co-opted by the Haredi world, then that's fine. Although I, I, like Ruby, don't have a problem with talking about people as Gadolim, although I think that the term needs to be earned a little bit more than perhaps other communities, you know, pass it around. But and, 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 and I think that's part of the intrinsic integrity of the halakhic system is a recognition of um, this, you know, kind of what Ruby was saying before about the Sanhedrin sitting around the table, that we do recognize tears, let's say, or, or, or you know, earned, um, whatever word you want to use, gravitas, seriousness, weight, within the halachic system. And I, and I don't think that that's something that we should just kind of um, cavalierly dismiss because, oh, now we're in a new era where it's all, everything is decided by consensus. Uh, no, although I should say, or um, I can give you my comments later, I mean, my gain of Rome basically says nowadays we don't have meaning already for the past few hundred years, there's been an evident shift according to normative halachic thinkers that that notion of, shall we say, Godel, who really has, you know, uh, uh, that kind of notion no longer exists. In fact, anybody who claims that they are, and these labels, you know, but if you're, saying, is, true, but if you're saying that's true from the time of the Magen Abraham, yeah. I mean, 
Then, then it's, it was never right. true. It's all over. Right. It wasn't true in his time. It wasn't true in Chazal's time. They said it their time too. You know, you know, you know they, 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 everybody felt it. Everybody feels that, that the Rabbanim that they had at their time, that, you know, I feel, you know, like I feel like, you know, when I, when I was a kid and we looked up to great people, and then nowadays, I guess I'm getting older and, and, you know, I think there are great people, but I don't see it in the same way. And I think that, that's normal. I think that's it's yeah. important to fight against. And I think that. I say the Chayraf still applies. Even if oh. you talk about how, oh my goodness, you know, the, the, the Gdolim and standing on the, standing on the shoulders of the giants and, uh, you know, every generation can't, you know, every, well, you know, we missed, we're missing all the greatness of the previous generations, but whether that's true or not, I still have an individual obligation to find somebody who can be my um, halachic authority in, if it's not for all areas, it's in specific areas. I think that's a, that's a, that's a goal to look for. That doesn't mean that one can't become a person who can pass it for themselves in certain areas. But like if a was, was, would be moaning the loss of Shlomo Zalman because he believed that he should have a Rav, I think, um, at least as a, as a, um, as a goal or a value, I think we should be maintaining it. Okay, well, that I for sure agree with, but Shkayach for your remarks. Thank you very, very much. <laughs> okay, thank you. Uh, how are we on time? I think we like, we, we've done two topics. We, we plan to do a third topic, but how are we on time? There's always time for more talk. Okay, Molly, you're up. Third topic. <laughs> okay, we can do this one rather quickly. Uh, I was just going to raise the issue. Uh, Yeshivat Eretz Hatzvi had a um, Yomidur on and the title of it was The Role of Women in Judaism, I believe. And Rabbi Todd Berman wrote a um, very nice blog, I would say, in the Times of, Times of Israel, just explaining why. Um, and there were things about it that I agreed with very much, and there were a couple of things that I thought perhaps, and again, this is a minor quibble because I have a lot of respect for Rabbi Berman, um, but I, 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 I've maybe would have formulated it a little bit differently, and, and there's some things I wanted to ask you about it. So... Basically, the, the reasons that were given for doing this, or the validations, were, well, the, well, the, the critique was, not the Haredi community is not the only community that erases women. We as a non-Orthodox community also erase women because we, when come to seminaries and there are no women and they don't see women and all they see is men. Um, okay, so, well, I'll get to my critiques in a minute. Um, then the only time they ever see women is might be very accomplished women. They might be women who are actually Torah scholars. They are certainly probably women who are very accomplished in their careers, but they only ever see them sitting around the Shabbos table as the rabbits of their rabbis, agreeing to the divrei Torah of their husbands. They don't ever get to see them as independent women with voices of their own. <laughs> they weren't by us. <laughs> but, but My wife certainly helped make dinner, but she didn't agree with the pearls of wisdom of her husbands. Right, exactly. So that, okay, so I'll get to that in one second. So, fine. Um, what I did agree with very strongly before I critique a little bit, and maybe I would advise everybody to go read his blog to make sure that I'm, you know, giving a fair reading because I'm obviously reading it the way I, you know, I, I took it. But the things that I agreed with very much were uh, that, the, that there, there is value to bringing women into speak men's institutions um, for two reasons. Reason number one is so that um, men can, young men certainly, should become aware that there are women who are Torah scholars. They should be exposed to them. Um, that's a value in and of itself. And I think that that's very true. Reason number two that he gave was 
to um, expose young men to the issues that women grapple with in their lives, which I think is as well a, a legitimate claim. Um, and so those things I agree with very strongly. I do think that men, certainly men should be seeing, especially women who are Torah scholars, I think that's healthy, I think that's positive, I think that can only do good things. Um, a few comments that I had, and then I want to hear your take, both of you. First of all, I, I think the word, I, I don't think the modern Orthodox community is erasing women, or has been, I think that's too strong a language, by not, or, you know, um, naturally having women teach on their faculties or speak at their activities. Um, that, that raises a question for me that I'd like to ask you, which is, a lot of the comments that Todd got were, great, when is Eretz Hatzvi going to hire their first women on their staff? And there I say to myself, it's not obvious to me that that is necessarily a positive thing. I'm not sure that, I mean, I definitely think that it's healthy and positive to be bringing in women, for them to be exposed to women, to hear women speakers. Um, I'm not convinced that a yeshiva, the immersive experience for men in Talmud Torah, should necessarily have women as part of its, um, you know, day-to-day ongoing staff. This is going to get into some tricky waters because you're going to say to me, I, but the women have men. Okay, so that we're going to- exactly what I was going to say. Right? (laughs) Um, So then we're going to have to wade into some very, 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 you know, sensitive areas. But so I'm leaving it with a question mark. Okay. The last point I want to make is that I, you know, I want to say that I do see positive movement on this front, certainly in Israel. I'm imagining it's got to be the same in America, but I'm saying what's all I know is here. Um, things have been, are, are already normative in our community. Um, last night, I think it was, or maybe a couple nights ago, Shivat Haritzion had an Erev, uh, I, I don't know exactly what it was, but they brought in a woman to talk about Pihutivri. Um, I know that they've brought in, they brought in, they bring, bring women in quite frequently to talk about issues. I know that when they talked about um, um, issues that pertain particularly to women in, you know, whatever they were learning in halacha, they brought in women lawyers and women um, who dealt with the issues that were being brought up in, in, in those sugya. That's not new. My son, who was in high school, had Yeshivat Valojin, which I think is a very sweet and cute idea where they, you know, they're learning 24-7. So they were bringing in speakers. And they had women as well as men um, speak to that. And that was, compl- and it was the boys themselves that organized the program. It was the boys themselves that reached out to the speakers. And it was obvious to them that they would be bringing women in. And I believe that that's wonderful. And um, I'm very happy about that trend. I think we're seeing it also in, um, in, ed- in just the leadership in our educational institutions. Um, Certainly, my daughter's elementary school and high school, the trend is towards hiring administrators who are female for the female, um, you know, for, for women's institutions. Seminaries, I think, are moving in that direction as well. Uh, the staff in the seminaries, I think, also is very strong in terms of women be taking, the, taking those positions. And so I think that that's, that's important also to point out. Like, I don't like this, like, yeah, because, you know, orthodoxy is so... You know. Okay, I, I, I've got. Well, those are my thoughts, and I'd like to hear what you have to say. I'm like chomping at the bit. Okay. I ahead. think you did a very, 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 like, Alon Shavut, Efrat, 
closed world. Yeah, Let I was going to ask if maybe this is from the view from Alon Shvod. Oh, my God. Let me share with you a little story that happened in Yad Benjamin a couple of months ago. So they brought in, there was this kolech, um, a kolech, like Shabbat, whatever. Doshatov, right. Yeah. Right? It was a Shabbat of Dovrot, called Shabbat Dovrot, where they wanted women to speak. And a bunch of women in Yad Benjamin brought they wanted to have a woman come and speak. So they invited a woman who is, I, I think, she's not a member of Kolech, she's associated with Kolech. Well, let's leave the politics aside. When the rabbi of Yeshu found out that a woman was coming that's associated with Kolech, he forbade the matnas from allowing her to speak to the youth in the youth. But Ruby, you can't leave politics aside. What, what if the woman had been coming from a different organization? Hold on. Okay, so, so then we brought that up, okay? We put that aside. So then we... I, I turned to, the, we were like, people were very, very upset across the whole, you know, you can imagine, because they ended up meeting in a pergola outside the show, blah, blah, blah. So I, 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 I was very upset about it because I think it's important for our daughters to hear from women and what have you. In the end, in the end, the, the rabbi of the issue told me, listen, if you want to bring a woman, I can't stop you. But I certainly wouldn't have her, you know, speak in the show, the main sanctuary. That's very inappropriate. So if you want to do it and your rabbi allows it, then I could, I would, I would, I would look the other way if you had it in the social part. Okay, so just understand that the siyach of, of Alon Shavud and Efrat is 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 a siyach. The other thing I want to talk about is a certain level of inequality, and you know, it's sort of a chicken and the egg. You know, there aren't that many women scholars. Oh, second story, story number two. They hired a woman to be the head of the ulpana in Chafetzchayim here. Okay, so what's her title going to be? What would you say the title of the head of the open should be? Rabbanit. Nope. Mahelet. She is the Menahelet. She's not the Roshat Ulpana because you can't have a Roshat Ulpana. You can have a Rosh Ulpana. You can't have a Roshat Ulpana. Okay, it's not number three. What? Why not? Why not? Because that's like a Rosh Shiva, and it's like, yeah, uncomfortable. Okay, story number three. And this is different, but it, like, it's, I think there's a chicken and the egg going on here because you don't have women scholars. Because they're, by definition, I would say that like, bec- like in a sem, so half there are men and half are women, let's say generally, like half, half the Rami are men, half the Rami are women, you know, even in the most liberal seminaries. But in a men's seminary, then all the Rami are men, you have non-women. That means that 75% of the jobs are reserved for men. I'm not convinced, by the way, in, uh, if you take a look at Big Delos and Linden Baum, I don't, um, it could be that we're, we're not at half and half, we're, we're leaning more towards women. Which is all good. How many other Sams are there other than McDonald's and Lindenbaum? Oh, you named both of them. Okay. Um, uh, so I used to teach, I used to not teach, I used to also teach. I was an administer, administrator in Oroch. And, and this is actually a very interesting thing that's, uh, that's come up in the, in, the, in, the, in the educational system in Israel that made its way to the Supreme Court. There's a Supreme Court case about can there be separate Haredi programs run by universities? Right. And basically, Haredim say, we'll go, to, we'll go to any university you want, do any program you want, we just want separate programs. And the Malak said, no way, separate is not equal. And, and the Haredim are like, give us a break, we just want to have, and this is, it's in front of the Israeli Supreme Court. So I'll tell you from the inside, really interesting thing that we noticed. When it came to hiring, so the way you had to hire, a word has a separate program for Haredim. It's a Haredim program in a bunch of different ways. Like, let's say one of them was educational administration, a master's of educational administration. So when it came to hiring, so for the, for the women, you could hire a woman teacher or a men's teacher. Mm-hmm. But for the men, you could only hire a men's teacher because the men didn't want women in front of them, and that's already normal. We didn't have a problem with that. 
The problem came was when you hired someone, so a woman wouldn't come for one class. She would come if you gave her a number of classes. Or when you wanted to hire someone, you wanted to hire someone over the, you know, just for technical reasons, over, you know, you want to give them a day or a course of a schedule. And what ended up happening was the majority of the hours just went to men because the nature of the beast was you have to, you have to figure it out in such a way that we ended up having more men than women. It was unfair. I remember like having to tell women, I'm sorry, I just can't give you the hours that you wanted or the ones you had last year because of the way the schedule worked out. Sorry. And everybody understood. So I, like, I feel like, like this goes back to the first discussion, they should have separate classes, but they should mandate that only women can teach women. Not for the, not for the students, but for the instructors. Mm -hmm. I think maybe we should think about that also. I, I don't think it's Sanua for women to be Ramiyot for, for a young man. I don't think that's appropriate. But not for, and I don't know if it's inappropriate for, for, for men to teach women. I don't think it's inappropriate. I mean, whatever, it's, that's what we do and I think it's fine. But I think if we want to have women scholars, we have to legislate and say, no, we need women to teach women because otherwise we'll never have enough women to teach them. Johnny. Just a couple of quick things. I know uh, time is ticking away. Just, I, I'm going to say two things. I know we've gone quite far from the original conversation. I'm a very, very strong advocate of, of women's scholarship. I'm also a board member of Chochmat Nashim. I'll tell you two things. One thing is a bugbear, and one thing that just happened, uh, in fact, two things that just happened very, very recently. I believe that what uh, Todd Berman did was excellent. It's wonderful. But if you want guys in the base medrash to respect women beyond the intermittent teaching of women in the base medrash, whether that will be a formal capacity or an informal capacity, I believe you should be quoting women Torah scholars. Uh, I believe that there is a lot of beautiful Torah written by women Torah scholars. And I find there's a dissonance between men who say we value women Torah scholars and even women who say we value women Torah scholars and how that's expressed in the Bet Midrash. Unless on a Daf Makarot in Shi'uim, you are marich, you value the Torah scholarship of women by quoting them, they're merely, in most cases, token reminders of minor progress. How do you get to be there? By being there literally on the shelves, by being there literally on the Daf Makarot, by saying, this is a scholar who I can quote like for like with another comparable person, whose Torah stands before them, and as a result of that, therefore, I am gender blind, or as best one can be. And I don't think we, as a modern Orthodox world, who claim to value women's Torah scholarship, do enough to actually not just uh, preserve uh, and, and venerate, but cite uh, and get excited by the scholarship being produced by women. That's point number one. Johnny, I'm not, I'm, I don't mean to disagree with you. I agree with you. Now, I don't know where I would find such a thing. I give a shear on Gemara Sukkah. I don't look for gender, but um, what, what women's scholarship is out there? I would give a partial shooter. You know, I don't, I don't, the classical well, sources, I don't, I, what, what, what do you, what, what do you want me, where do you want me to find it? Here's it. I was taught by people like Hannah Safrai. I mean, people like her knew Mishnah and Shas in a way that most guys could only dream of. There are people, perhaps, of course, less in number and less in, in people aren't so much aware of them. Nevertheless, and part of it is to do with how things are published and how things are shared. But when I used to publish a newsletter, I'd make sure that every week I quote a women's Torah scholar. If you really believe in it, you'll find a way. Uh, and if you simply think it's a token, then you'll have the token visit. I'm not suggesting that's what Eretz speeds does. What I'm simply saying is we can do more if you really believe in, in this mission and in valuing Torah scholarship for women. A second brief thing, though, uh, and this is what I think, by the way, uh, people, things like these programs do. 
You know, in our community, in Evan Shmuel, there have been a process of interviewing prospective rabbis for the community. Uh, and two things came up. Number one is when they said, are you going to do programs for the Noah? And the rabbi said, of course, I'm going to let the boys lead services. And I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Noah is boys and girls. And there's a language issue. The second point is, whenever there was a question related to gender, specifically Kriat Megillah by women, the prospective rabbis always said it's complicated. And they always said, depends on the agenda of the women. I actually think it's the other way around. I think that most guys, even subliminally, are, are pushed towards having a, a, a subconscious agenda that women have an agenda, right? And consequently, the more they actually have FaceTime with serious Torah observant women beyond their family, who often they just perceive as being mom and sister, the more they came to realize that person is, a, is somebody who, who uh, worships God no less than I, who's no less sincere than I, perhaps even more. Uh, I, I think we, we will change a system from within when we educate young men, obviously young women, the other way around, uh, young men to recognize that women don't have an agenda as it's sometimes portrayed in, in Shortim and in some rabbinic literature, which is in response to trends that occurred 50, 60 years ago. The world has moved on and we need to update them about the world. And if we fail to do that, I don't think we're educating them effectively. Okay. Thank you very much. I think... Uh... This has gone on long enough. We definitely need a title because if we don't have a title, then we can't publicize. So hopefully we'll come up with one before we do. Uh, I want to thank uh, Rabbi Johnny Solomon. I want to thank Mrs. Rajagrovsky. This has been fun and informative. And uh, if you have comments or questions, you can email any one of us. Uh, I'm very easy to find on the internet. Johnny, you want to share your email? or we'll, uh, Find me on Facebook and uh, there you'll find my email too. Molly, do you have Facebook? Do you do the uh, Facebook? Yep. Yep, you can find me on Facebook. Okay, thanks very much, and uh, hopefully we'll see you next week. Call to Bye. Bye.